You're listening to EG News, the podcast, the official podcast of the East Greenwich News publication produced by Nova Pro Media. Please visit eastgreenwichnews.com and join our newsletter so you can stay up to date with everything going on in our community. While you're at it, don't forget to hit that subscribe or follow button on this podcast so you can be notified every time we upload a new episode. And as always, don't forget to follow us on your favorite social media platform. And now, here's the show. Hi, everyone. It's Elizabeth McNamara from East Greenwich News, and I'm here with my partner in crime, Joni Hinman. Hello. And we also have um, Darren Murphy from our staff. And we have as our guest, Chris, Christopher Rondina, who um, is a special guest for October. Uh, before we begin, though, I just wanted to shout out to Jesse Tolpa at the controls of Nova Pro Media. We always are appreciative of his excellent work. Thank you. And hi, everybody. Hello. Hello. Well, you know, it's the strangest thing. I, we, we were kind of looking around for a guest that might have something to do with Halloween. It's October. And we came across Chris. And I had no idea that this neck of the woods, Rhode Island, was known for a history with vampires as rich as what you have documented in several books now. For for a long, long time, there was a, a sort of, uh, we jokingly referred to Rhode Island as the Transylvania of the Western world. These days, really? it turns out that New England has a lot of vampire folklore, and actually there's probably more vampire folklore outside of Rhode Island, but for a long time it seemed to be centered here, and we still have some of the most extraordinary stories, so... Um, it's always a subject of, of great fascination to me, and, and it is what sort of set me on my career path. I think a lot of people had heard a little bit about Mercy Brown. Tell us her story and history. Is that a good place to start? Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good place to start. It's kind of almost, it's E.G. adjacent. Adjacent. <laughs> we've, got a West, we've got a West G. Coming oh, up next. Yeah, okay. go ahead. So, um, so Mercy is a great place to start because she's probably the most famous vampire folktale in uh, in New England, maybe, um, certainly in Rhode Island. But Mercy Brown was a young woman who died in 1892, but she was the third member of her family to die over a period of a handful of years. And uh, um, she was... Uh, she was the daughter of a farmer, George Brown, and at that time, Exeter was a very, very remote and rural place, as it largely is today, but primarily, you know, farming communities. And they didn't really understand very much the way diseases were transferred, but one disease that was fairly common at the time was referred to as consumption. Is that course, basically TB? Well, uh, that's what most people assume now. They, we don't really know for sure because oh. they didn't have a method to diagnose it, but we guess that it was often a reference to tuberculosis, but um, uh, at the time, they referred to it as consumption because to consume literally means to eat. And they believed that it was not a disease of the body. It was a disease of the soul. And that some external force, some supernatural force was consuming your life from within. E.g. Wow. vampires. So was, uh, it, was that specific to one religion or just holistically? Interestingly enough, we're not 100% sure how it arrived here. It seems, at least in New England, that the vampire folklore that rose here over the course of that century, because this actually dates back to the 1700s, that it it seems to parallel European vampire folklore, which is not always true. There are vampire tales all over the world, but our vampire folklore here in New England really does seem to um, uh, emulate European vampire folklore, especially Eastern European. Mm-hmm. We think it could have come over with uh, um, with uh, Jewish settlers from the Middle East at some point, oh, not the Middle East, rather, uh, from Eastern Europe at some point. It could have come over, uh, you know, it's, it's really hard to say for sure. Um, so it was, it was basically a medical folklore. It was the idea that this 
invisible spirit was consuming your body, and the only way to destroy it was to find whoever the last person was to die of the uh, illness, and they would be harboring this sort of consumptive spirit. Oh, it would jump from one body to the other. It's an interesting aspect of it. Rather than every person who was killed by a vampire rising as a vampire, which we often see in modern folklore, Mm -hmm. instead it was the belief that it literally leapfrogged into the next body over. And so you had to find whoever was the most recently killed. That didn't always mean the person who was most recently killed in your family because you didn't know what was going on elsewhere. So they would hunt down recently buried corpses. They would exhume them and look for signs that they had not sufficiently decomposed and if they were still intact or showed any signs of motion or their nails had grown, their hair had grown or anything else, it was the presumption that they were living beyond death. So Mercy dies. So Mercy would die. Mercy died. The third in her family, her mother, Mary, died first. Then her sister, Mary Olive, died a few years later. And um, uh, finally, when Mercy passed away, the people of, of uh, um, Exeter got together and they insisted that George Brown exhume the bodies because Exeter itself had already a reputation for this kind of thing. And people did believe that vampires preyed on, on people in this way. And so despite the fact that George Brown didn't buy into this at all, he was completely, completely opposed to the idea. But the townsfolk, including a fellow named William Rose, um, who was from uh, Peacedale, said, you have to do this for the good of the town. Exhume your mu- your wife, exhume your elder daughter, your younger daughter, find out which one of them is the vampire. Were they carrying pitchforks and torches by You know, we, of course, we always like to see it that way, and it's entirely possible, but but that's really what the townsfolk did. They showed up, uh, they actually went to the uh, Exeter Town Hall, they had a, um, a meeting, they demanded that he do this for the good of the community, and sort of strong-armed him until he did it. And it sounded like the doctor wasn't particularly game for this adventure either. No, the doctor um, that, uh, that uh, presided over the event was was George Brown's idea. George Brown hired a uh, Harvard-educated doctor who was resident of Wickford. His name was, uh, um, oh my gosh. Was it Metcalf? Uh, yes, Harold Metcalf. Yeah. Good, thank you for reminding me of that. Sure. Uh, uh, Harold Metcalf, and he came out, and he figured that they figured that he would add a little bit of legitimacy to the proceedings <laughs> and some sanity to it. So they went out, they um, exhumed Mercy's mother and Mercy's sister, both of whom showed complete decomposition. They were basically skeletons at that point. Um, and when Mercy was uh, taken out, she was actually in a crypt. She was not yet buried. She died in January, but she was being unearthed in March and had been very, very cold. So they took her out of the crypt, found that her body was completely intact, and the townsfolk immediately, right up in arms, said, clearly she's the vampire. Look at her. She's perfect. And the doctor said, well, it is in fact only March, and basically she's been chilled this entire time. But the townsfolk said, nope, this is proof enough. Let's go ahead. We'll do what we have to do, which was exhum- uh, which was to cut her heart out. So they removed her heart and they burned it on a rock nearby into ashes, and supposedly that would lay uh, the vampire to rest. But Matt Metcalf, of course, insisted through the whole thing that it was was completely natural, but the townsfolk were convinced that this was proof she was the vampire. Now, I mean, I could almost buy this if it were the 1700s, but this was the late... 1800. 1892. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to figure at that point, the Statue of Liberty was already up in New York Harbor. You could probably buy a bottle of Coke at the local, you know, at your local store. I mean, it was not the Dark Ages by any means. My great-grandmother, who was a a big part of my life when I was young, was born in 1900, only eight years after this happened. So, you know, again, this is not the Dark Ages. Um, But 
these were farming communities. These people didn't really do a lot of schooling. Um, you know, again, the, the way that uh, diseases were, were transmitted wasn't something that they were overly familiar with. I mean, our concept of disease transmission was already still pretty primitive at that point. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of consumption was, was widespread and it had been a problem, uh, sort of uh, the consumption was a big part of New England, uh, you know, medical history at that point. And the folklore connected to it was still very powerful. And it's a little different from what we think of when we hear a vampire story, you know, the fangs, you know, blood sucking in the middle of the night, that kind right. of thing. And that's very true. And one of the reasons for that is that what we didn't have in 1892 was the sort of Bible of vampires, which came out a few years later in 1897. And that was the novel Dracula. The novel Dracula published in 1897. That came out in 1897. Oh and it laid the groundwork for everybody to know what a vampire looked like, how a vampire behaved. And it basically became our, you know, sort of our, our, our map. Our to how reference. Our template. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. But this that, is what a vampire does. Yeah, but that didn't exist at that time. There was vampire um, uh, literature in the sort of that came out from the Gothic era, but every story made up its own rules and interpreted folklore as they would. So there was really no consistency. But Dracula became such a hit that its version of vampirism, and then of course later the film versions, cemented what we think about vampires today. Even a lot of things that we think of when we think of vampires today didn't even come from the from the novel Dracula. They came from the later film adaptations. Like vampires uh, not being able to survive in the sunlight actually comes from the 1922 uh, film Nosferatu. That does not exist in the book. So a lot of our modern vampire folklore comes from Dracula and then reinterpreted again through the film version. In other words, it's fake. Well, it's, yeah, it's, I mean, Just all folklore, one part of it. All folklore in a one. sense is, is, you know, is invented in some way, but it's usually based on observation. It, then right. it became based on cinematic, you know, convention. So take us from Mercy to the Nellie Vaughn story from West Warwick. So um, uh, in, uh, in West Greenwich, um, uh, oh, West Warwick, the, uh, uh, West Greenwich, oops, yeah, sorry. Was, that's okay. In West Greenwich um, in the uh, 1890s, another young girl uh, by the name of Nellie Vaughn had passed away also at the age of 19. And we believe most likely did also pass away from consumption. But during her lifetime and even immediately afterward, as far as we know, there was not really any vampire uh, belief connected with her. However, in the 1960s, as the story is told, because this is another piece of folklore, interestingly enough, in the 1960s, uh, a Coventry school teacher was talking to his um, students, and we believe he was explaining the story of Mercy Brown. And we don't know whether he omitted details to keep the kids from going to the graveyard, or if he didn't even know the specifics and only gave him a very general version of it. But he told them about a 19-year-old Victorian-era girl who passed away, was believed to be a vampire, and became and was exhumed. Well, the kids, even without all that knowledge, went out hunting for the vampire in question. I guess explored some old cemeteries in, in East Greenwich at the... Uh, um, uh, the or West uh, Greenwich? Uh, West Greenwich. See, there we go. We're all doing kind of... Thank, but, thank you, Elizabeth. Yeah. You just didn't want me to feel alone saying the wrong right. town. Okay. <laughs> I tell you, at this age, my brain wanders constantly, so I'll probably have to do that a lot. But uh, um, but at the uh, um, uh, the Old Plain, uh, on Old Plain Meeting House Road uh, back there, there is an old, old cemetery, and some kids found a gravestone for a 19-year-old girl named Nellie Vaughn, who had died and who had the um, inscription, I am waiting and watching for you, written on a gravestone. And they all thought that this was tremendously That's creepy. That's really creepy. And they said, well, clearly this has to be the vampire. And so they told all their friends and they told all their friends. And the, the legend of Nellie Vaughn, the vampire, was born at that time. But interestingly in the enough. In the 1960s. In the 1960s. And it Better became, late than never. It became a, um, an urban legend that is still so popular today that if you ask any, usually high school kids, um, where vampire's grave is, they're going to direct you to the Plain Meeting House Cemetery. Um, and that... 
So she's almost as famous as Mercy Brown. I think only because Mercy Brown has been more popularized in, uh, there's been books written about her and things like that. So she's certainly better known, but in the sort of local folklore, uh, they, they really almost balance out. So, Mer- so Nellie Vaughn is basically the counterfeit uh, Mercy Brown. I had not read um, much about this until I picked up your book. I've got an old one, Vampire Legends of Rhode Island from the late 90s, I think. And you talk a lot about the Tillinghast family connection. What was that all about? So this is actually the appears to be the beginning of vampire belief in Rhode Island, or at least one of the oldest stories. There's maybe one that goes back before the Tillinghast, but the Tillinghast was another one that became very, very well known. So um, in the late uh, um, 18th century, around 1797 to 1799, there was a large family, uh, large, uh, almost anyone probably would know the Tillinghast name today because they're still very well known throughout Rhode Island. A lot of them are their founders. But uh, uh, a fellow named Stutely Tillinghast, who was often referred to as Snuffy Stukely by his friends. Snuffy um, Stutely. Yep. So it's often referred to as the legend of Snuffy Stukely. Um, uh, had a farm out in Exeter, only a couple miles actually from where eventually the Brown Farm would have been where Mercy was. And he had, according to this folktale, which again goes back uh, centuries, 14 children. One night, Why not? One night, uh, um, in the course of a dream, he looked over out over his orchards, which he had in real life, but in the dream he saw half of the trees in his orchard withered and had withered and died, and came to the conclusion that some terrible plague or malady was going to destroy his orchard. In the coming months, going towards harvest time, uh, the orchard was fine, but his children started to die off one by one, starting with his eldest daughter, Sarah, who was also 19 at the time. This seems to be sort of a, a theme. Weird. Um, but then other children in the family, a couple of the boys died, a couple of the girls died, and each of them, as they would lay sick in bed, claimed that the spirit of Sarah would return to them and would sit on the bed, usually lay a hand on their chest or sit on some portion of their body, causing them to uh, great pain. They wouldn't be able to breathe, and slowly they would fade away and die as well. Uh, at first, they presumed that these were just nightmares, but eventually the family became concerned that these visitations by Sarah were some kind of a real problem, and probably on the advice of a local cl- clergyman who knew something of this story, went out to the graveyard, exhumed uh, all of the children who had died, found that all of them were showing signs of decomposition except Sarah, who'd been in the grave for the longest at that point, and did, as again was uh, fairly common at the time, cut out the heart, burned it, and some people will say uh, cut off the head, things like that, but it's very hard to tell because those records, we know, for instance, exactly what happened to Mercy Brown, because when Mercy Brown was exhumed, uh, uh, somebody for the Providence Providence Journal was actually on site, and uh, the story was reported in the Providence Journal the next day, so we have all the details between Dr. Metcalf's reports and the journal story, but with the older stories, it's often only the folklore that has survived, and we can prove these people existed, prove the details, or the, the sort of folkloric details, but the specific Specifics can be very, very hard to pinpoint. And I'm sorry, what years was this? So we believe that she probably died around 1799, but again, records are a little bit imprecise for the family, um, so we don't know that for sure. We do know that Stutely, Stutely Tilling Mass did exist. We even know where the cemetery is located, and we can find the cemetery, uh, find the graves for most of the children. But records of the family are very sparse at the time, and for instance, things that have probably been elaborated over over time is that it doesn't seem that he really had 14 children. It seems that he had 11 children and maybe like four of them died. So the details of the story have been uh, sort of elaborated to make it a more exciting, uh, you know, to make it a more exciting folktale. Probably the dream may have been fabricated at some later point, but the story exists. And it's almost certain that he really did exhume his daughter. They just have turned the story into something a little bit more romanticized. Mm -hmm. And they also did some 
some of this exhuming elsewhere. And there was a very grisly tale from uh, Connecticut, I think Griswold, Connecticut. Yep, in Griswold, Connecticut. Um, uh, grisly Griswold. Yes, yes. <laughs> there are two stories uh, connected to Griswold. And there's quite a few other vampire stories throughout Connecticut. But Griswold is interesting um, because uh, to have two stories in a fairly uh, close period, close uh, physical space. One was the Ray family. The Ray family um, actually had two of the young men in the family die. The family became concerned that they were also rising as vampires and had their bodies exhumed as well. It's unusual because really through most of New England, the majority of these exhumations were exhumations of women. I've actually mm -hmm. had people say to me, you know, um, is this kind of like, you know, a little bit of an of a analog of the Salem witch trials? And I suppose in some ways it was because people tended to believe that women were more susceptible to supernatural influence. But I always, I always point out, at least we waited until they were dead to persecute them in here in Rhode Island, you know. <laughs> but... Um, but uh, the, the most interesting story in Griswold comes from uh, the 1980s because a couple of young uh, boys were playing in a, it was part of a construction site that had a, gra a gravel pit. And while playing there, um, sliding down a hill, they dislodged some bones that were sticking out of the hillside, didn't even realize what they'd done until they got to the bottom of the hill and found bones sitting there. And uh, immediately the police were called. It was believed that maybe some serial killer, some murderer had buried somebody there. But after further investigation, they ended up locating the um, an old cemetery, a cemetery that had literally been wiped off the map. Up above ground, there were no sign of any graves at that time. They went back in recent records, and they went uh, back about 120 years before they could find a record of the cemetery. Somehow, the cemetery had literally just been wiped off the books. And uh, doc, um, uh, Nick Bellantoni, who was the state archaeologist of Connecticut at that time, uh, was on site to exhume these bodies and help to preserve them because they were going to be destroyed if they stayed in this location. So they were going to relocate all of the bodies, but they found that one of the graves had actually been uh, exhumed after long after the person's death. It was a male skeleton, um, and on the grave were the um, brass tacks that spelled out JB55. So it was a 55-year-old man with the initials JB. When they opened the grave, they found that the skull had been decapitated, and it was actually now sitting among the jumbled rib bones, and that the mm. femurs had been pulled up into an X position. So they created a skull and crossbones out of his bones. This couldn't have been done when the body was intact. had to have been done much later. So long after this man was di uh, died, they exhumed his body and tried to re-kill him with this sort of magical uh, process of decapitation and creating this death symbol. Um, and so, the, again, the presumption was maybe this was something to, to lay him after death. But when um, the, the skeleton was brought down to the Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington, D.C., they were able to determine that there were lesions on the bones that were consistent with tuberculosis, so he suffered from consumption, and that all the pieces kind of fell together, that he was almost certainly a vampire as well, well, believed to be a vampire as well. Right. And the, there's another story about Griswold? Well, this was the Ray family. The Ray family also in Griswold. And this was in the 18, it was in the later 1890s. Two of the young men in the family, same situation. They'd both died of consumption. It was believed that both of them were coming back or that they were in danger of coming back. And so just like with so many other families, uh, they, they exhumed them. And I believe they burned the hearts in this case. In some of the stories, they burned the entire body. Again, remember they were they were playing with you know sort of a very very vague idea of what a vampire was. They wouldn't even use that word. Really, the um, especially in the 1700s and the early 1800s wasn't really in common use yet. Um, uh, gothic fiction from the mid 19th century started to introduce the word vampire commonly to the English language, but it really hadn't made it over here until the late 19th century. So around the time of Mercy, 
the word vampire definitely started to be using. And maybe in the couple of years before that, but in the mid-19th century, back to the 18th century, they would have called it a dark spirit, you know, a demon, a monster, but they wouldn't have had the word vampire, at least not at, at readily available What does to use. vampire even mean? Do we know? It's a Slavic word um, that comes from uh, um, an older word, probably the word upir, which literally means to drink. And so it was believed that these were, again, consuming you spirits. want to drink your blood. Yep. But you actually do identify a couple of medical conditions in your book that um, could be connected to what is thought of to be a vampire. Um, in the 1980s, right around the same time that all this was happening, a, uh, um, a, do a, uh, a doctor by the name of David Dolphin, uh, interesting name, um, came up with the idea that uh, something called congenitive por porphyria would have possibly been an answer to why vampire uh, folklore existed because people with porphyria um, had very, very pale skin. Uh, they could appear to waste away. Their, their teeth could be stained red, and sometimes the effect on their teeth could even um, cause them to look very jagged. Plus, they're incredibly photosensitive and can burn and blister in sunlight oh, with exposure wow. to sunlight. It is a big wow, but what's fascinating about this is that he, he really made a huge splash with this because uh, he published a paper on it, and everybody was like, this is incredible. You've basically solved the vampire riddle. But he hadn't, because remember what we were talking about earlier, where most of what we understand about vampires today comes from cinematic vampires. He was uh, associating porphyria with the cinematic symptoms of vampirism, but it wasn't what folkloric vampires were like. In fact, folkloric vampires were rarely pale. They were very ruddy, flushed with blood. They were often plump because they were gorged. People saw them in a very, very different way. So Dolphin had basically described the Bela Lugosi style of vampire that had never existed before in folklore. So unfortunately, his uh, they poked a lot of holes in his theory, and it didn't end up uh, being very likely. That is fascinating. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know in October we like to... Um visit cemeteries or some people do is there a, you know are you sensitive to that that you know cemeteries or, or get disrupted or grave sites I'm a, get disrupted I'm a big believer in preserving cemeteries I'm a big believer in historical preservation but I also believe that what we call legend tripping which is exactly what that is it's when people go to famous places that are either associated with a fictional or folkloric haunting or a monster or something like that 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 can actually bring funds to these places that can bring attention to them and that can help them survive instead it's just about people being respectful when they're there um, you know if people buy books oh my gosh I'm sorry about that if people buy books, uh, you know, um, you know, on these subjects, you know, often uh, people um, uh, uh, donate proceeds from these books to, to um, historic cemetery preservation and things like that. And so these can be really positive things if people go in res with respect. It doesn't always work that way. In the, I think it was in the early 1990s, Mercy Brown's gravestone was actually stolen. And it was uh, um, it was stolen and it disappeared for several months and the, they believed people started saying, oh, it was some satanic cult stole it for some reason or something like that. And for me, I never bought into that. I assumed that it was just some frat kids that did it mm -hmm. because it was like, you know, it was cool to have or it was a great prank or something. And eventually, um, I guess probably the heat got a little bit too much on whoever was keeping it. And so the, the grave was dumped in a ditch directly across the street from the cemetery and they did recover it. Oh. In wow. comparatively good condition. I mean, a, a big piece, portion of it that was originally uh, attached to his base had cracked. If you ever happen to go to the Chestnut Hill Cemetery to see Mercy Brown's grave now, it is back, but it's actually um, bolted to the ground with this enormous iron band and has a huge sort of a, a platform behind it that keeps it bolted in place so that it's a lot harder to steal now. But people are fascinated by these things and unfortunately not always respectful. I know I went to um, H.P. Lovecraft's 
grave site at Swan Point Cemetery. Swan Point, yeah. And there was like uh, some memento from the movie Twister and a few other odd things. And um, the person who was giving us a little walk said, yeah, we're clearing stuff out of H.P. Lovecraft's site daily, practically, because people go there and, you know, just leave, leave a little, little tchotchke. Little pressure, presents. Yeah. 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 Offerings are left at Mercy Brown's grave every single day. Are they? Depending on the time of year you go there. I mean, it's virtually buried in little, you know, little again, whether it's coins or flowers or journal entries and things like that. Uh, you know, I've seen people... Candles? Bring, uh, I've seen candles there. I've seen little tiny vampire figurines that people bought and things like that. And so they leave these offerings all the time. And for a while, somebody had actually left a journal book in there so you could write entries in it and things like that. And so again, you know, it's, it's, she's somewhere between a rock star and this kind of like iconic saintly figure that people are very, very drawn to. So they come there, they, they leave offerings to appease her or just to feel like they're part of the legend which is, again, a lot of what legend tripping is about. But also people hope that, that it'll bring them some kind of fortune to appease this vampire spirit because a lot of folks still do believe to this day, of course, that she's actually rising from the grave. And I do have a funny uh, story about that, which is that when Mercy Brown died, um, uh, she was the last of the children of the family, uh, the last of the female children of the family to die, but she had an older brother by the name of Edwin. And Edwin grew sick while Mercy was, um, was slowly fading, um, but he had gone to Colorado, to Colorado Springs, where they said that the air and the water would actually bring him back. And he was doing very well um, when Mercy died. So the father called him back, George Brown called him back and said, you got to come for your you know, sister's funeral. He returned. He immediately started to get, you know, go poorly again. And so when they exhumed Mercy's body and cut out her heart, as I say, they, they burned it to ashes. They actually mixed it into a tincture to give him as medicine, hoping that it would inoculate him against the, wow. the sort of the vampire infection. It didn't work, so they um, they Surprise. did. They did, of course, bury him. He's actually buried right next to Mercy. However, he should have stayed in Colorado Springs. He, he I think he should have. But what's interesting about that is that people often talk about you know Mercy still wandering the grave as a vampire. But technically speaking, by all accounts, if you've cut out her heart, she would be done. But because the scandal connected to Mercy's exhumation, remember this was 1892, and the journal was running front page stories about it, it became a huge scandal because people thought it was barbaric. You know. I mean, in Providence, Newport, places where people were much more, you know, sort of urbane and educated, people thought this was insane. So they didn't exhume Edwin, even though he had, technically speaking, should have been the last in line and therefore the one to harbor the vampire uh, uh, sort of spirit. They never exhumed him. He stayed at least not publicly in any way. So I always say that if there's a vampire in that graveyard, it would have to be Edwin. So people are basically looking for the wrong vampire. That's my that's my take on it. I have a question. Um how did you get into all this? You know what? I grew up in New England. I grew up listening to ghost stories. Um, I went to, uh, uh, I lived in Middletown, Rhode Island, and I lived literally just across the road from the Norman Bird Sanctuary, this wonderful place in, in uh, mm -hmm. Middletown. And every year they had a huge Halloween party for all the neighborhood kids, and they would show all the old black and white universal horror movies in their education shed and everything. And I fell in love with that stuff. It became like everything. Halloween was my favorite holiday, and I always loved bats and vampires and things like that. So. As I was growing older, occasionally I would hear people talk about Mercy Brown and other vampire stories. And sometimes, like around Halloween time, the journal or one of the local papers would run a little snippet about it. And I thought, this is great. This is so much fun. And then I would tell other people, i say, you know, we have vampires here in Rhode Island, right? And everybody looked at me like I was from Mars. So... Um, 
I think probably it was the early 1990s that I decided that I was going to uh, um, photocopy all these old newspaper clippings I'd been collecting into a little pamphlet that I could print up at Kinko's back in when Kinko's still existed, put a staple in the middle of it, and I could sell it for two bucks. That was my big plan. And um, uh, at the time, there was a wonderful old used bookstore in Newport, and he sold a lot of local people's like poetry in that format, basically, you know, a little like 10 pages stapled together. And I asked him if he would take the vampire collection that I put together. And he said, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I don't think you can just publish a bunch of newspaper articles because, first of all, there's no context to it, and secondly, a lot of these are under copyright. Most of them weren't at that point, but the point was taken. So he encouraged me to write a little introduction to each of them that would explain what they were and why they meant anything. So I started doing that, and as I did that, little by little, I'd bring it back to him, and he would say, you know, well, this is okay, but it's still not very clear. You need to write a little bit more. You need to write a little bit more. And it was like stone soup, you know, that old folktale, <laughs> is that all of a sudden I had an 80-page book that I'd written by accident. I didn't even know, to, know that I'd done it. And he said, wow. he said, you know what? I feel like this is pretty good now, but it's way beyond anything I can publish. Let me help you try to track down a publisher because I think people would enjoy this. And within about two months, um, I had somebody that was willing to publish it. And boom, all of a sudden I'd written a book by That's accident. That's amazing. Yeah. I love that story. Yeah, a great mentor. It was great fun. a good mentor. Maybe oh, yeah. I'm going to have to use that tool with, with young writers, do you know? <laughs> just a little, just do a little bit more. Just a Bring little bit more. Thursday. And you were so interested that you actually went to Dracula's castle. I did. I had gotten, I'd, I'd written the vast majority of the book. And at that point, um, you know, I found myself sitting in a cafe with one of my best friends at the time um, in Newport. And um, we were, I had picked up a book called In Search of Dracula by um, Professor Raymond McNally, who ended up becoming a good friend, which was a wonderful thing. But Raymond McNally was one of the greatest experts on the topic of Dracula. He and his uh, co-author, um, Radu Florescu, who was of Romanian descent, had written a book that basically was the first to... Um, um, in-depth research the connection between Vlad III of Romania, the uh, Prince Dracula, and the his the, the fictional Dracula. So he they kind mm. of you know blew that story wide open. And I had picked up a new edition of the book, and I was reading through it. And there's some photos of the ruins of the original castle Dracula in Romania, which he had found. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to go there someday? And my my friend was like, yeah, it sure would be. And I said, why do we do that to ourselves all the time? Why do we say, ooh, wouldn't it be amazing? And then we act like we couldn't do it. I said, I wonder what it would take to go to Transylvania. And he said, well, you should just go ask a travel agent. So I did. And I think that she thought I was crazy, but I said, what would I have to do to go to, to Transylvania? And so she ended up finding a West Coast um, travel company that specialized in Eastern Europe, and the, the two who ran it were from Romania, and they set us up on this wonderful, uh, you know, sort of trip all across Romania. So I spent about three weeks driving through the country, um, and Transylvania, by the way, is spectacularly beautiful. Wow! And um, so we, on Halloween night in 1996, we climbed the mountain where the ruins were, pitched a tent. Halloween in the, night. Yep. On Halloween night, we pitched a tent in one of the ruined uh, towers of the castle and spent the night there. It was amazing. And and you know what? I woke up with a very stiff uh, back from a very cold <laughs> night, but no holes in my neck, and I can still stand around in the sunlight and eat garlic. So I think I'm in good shape. So I have to admit, um, when I was a kid, I would watch, the, you know, on Saturdays, they'd have movies, and, and uh, Vincent Price played a big role in my, in my imagination, and um, I got really afraid of vampires. So I can remember going to sleep with hair very specifically, you know, sleeping on my side and the hair was <laughs> over my neck with the theory that if a vampire came, they'd have to move the hair before they could bite me and then I'd wake up. And now I, I hadn't actually gamed out what I would do beyond <laughs> that, 
But I mean, I definitely had that fear, you know, of it. So I, you know, I, for whatever reason, monsters like that were never frightful to me. Um, I, you know, again, I grew up with this, you know, all these beautiful woods in my backyard and I used to wander around in the woods. And I mean, I mean, I certainly had my childhood nightmares and my things that I was scared of, but vampires and werewolves and things like that really weren't among them. Um, I always was more fascinated by them and loved, I mean, I was the one who wanted to be a vampire or be a werewolf, not be afraid of them. Um, Frankenstein though, Frankenstein always scared me because he was just like this big lumbering monster and, and I guess basically the sort of template for the modern zombie. And that still gets me to this day, but no, vampires never frightened me. Any paranormal experiences? I do. Um, when I was uh, 15 years old, I encountered the spirit of a young girl in a um, house that I was living in in Newport, a beautiful Victorian house built in the, um, the 1880s, and uh, that changed my life. It really did. Um, I, without going into tremendous detail about it, um, uh, a, another friend of mine, again, I was only 15, one of my friends was sleeping over that night, and we were both sitting up in bed. It was about 10 o'clock at night. It was a beautiful Victorian house, and one of the nice things about it is that because it was a furnished apartment, I ended up getting the biggest bedroom in the house because it had two single beds in it, and my brother was not living with us at the time, but my mom wanted to make sure that if my brother came to stay, he had a place to stay. So my uh, mom and my stepdad took the larger room that had the queen-size bed, and I got the, or the smaller room with the queen-size bed, but I got this really big sprawling room with these two single beds. So, so my uh, friend Russ and I were sitting up in bed and there was a street light that uh, um, was shining through this sort of split in the curtains. And the curtains were mostly closed, but just this one shaft of, of uh, light was coming through and the mist in it just kept forming into this almost human-like shape. And it was hard to perceive. It wasn't like it was a ghost like you see in a cartoon or something like that, but just this vague figure that was kind of human-like. And it was about halfway into the room where the light was shining in, and we were both sort of fascinated by it, and eventually we kind of joking like, oh my gosh, maybe it's a ghost, you know? And um, so eventually I got out of bed and I said, well, I just need to figure out what this thing is. So I walked towards this misty form that was just forming in the light. Like I say, it wasn't, you know, freestanding. And I walked into the space where it was, and I collapsed on the floor crying like a baby. Yep, collapsed on the, and all I could feel was just this overwhelming sorrow. And um, for about maybe five minutes, I lay on the floor with this sensation of sorrow that clearly was not my own. And when I finally kind of snapped out of it, I heard a voice over my shoulder and I heard somebody saying, I never meant to hurt you, um, but you wouldn't let me grow up. I didn't mean to hurt you or hurt, uh, hurt anybody, but you wouldn't let me go. You wouldn't let me grow up. And I didn't know what the heck I was hearing, but I was already a little bit on the freaked outside. And I turned around and Russell is sitting on the edge of the bed. And he's just he must saying be. this. He's saying this into the air. Oh, and he's, he's not, speaking. Yeah, he's not speaking. He's speaking and he's not looking at me. Um, and so I was like, whatever was just messing with me is now messing with him. So I jumped over my bed, grabbed a pad, and I started writing down this sort of vague nonsense that it was saying. Again, it was just the same two or three things over and over again. I never I meant to hurt you or anybody. You never let me grow up. You wouldn't let me go. And when it finally passed, he remembered what happened to me, but he had no memory of speaking. And uh, so we were both mortified. I mean, absolutely terrified at this point and uh, ended up kind of leaving the house and walking around town all night because I didn't even want to go back to the house until almost dawn. 
But um, that changed my life. It completely changed my life. And it wasn't until almost 35 years later that I was able to, uh, to, to sort of put a, some closure to it because working with a paranormal group that, um, called uh, Rise Up, the Rhode Island uh, um, Society for, oh my gosh, they're going to kill me if they hear this. Uh, Supernatural it, Yeah, it's, it's, uh, they're, they're just basically a wonderful paranormal research group. And one of their historians, Chris Blanchett, um, helped me do some research into the house. He asked me about the story because I told it to people before. And he said, did you ever look into the place? I was like, I was 15. It was the 80s. There was no internet. Nobody's right. going to give me kind of records on this house. So he said, well, let me see if I can look into it. And ended up finding that the original owner's daughter died at 11 years old in that house and um, died after a fairly short illness. But I have questions about that and the, the idea that maybe she'd been locked away, which was not uncommon for Victorian children who were considered whether she had a mental illness or if she had some kind of physical deformity. They were often considered uh, sort of detrimental to the family's image. This was mm -hmm. a fairly well-off family, so I wonder if she was locked away and died in you know sort of despair and sorrow. This is a, a theory, but it's one that I think fits the story. So I believe that now I even know who she was. Wow, that's quite a tale. Quite a sure tale. Is. Yeah, it definitely was, like I say, a, it's one of the many things that set me on the path that I'm on today, you know, sort of writing about legends and folklore. And for the last uh, 15 or 20 years now, I've spent a lot of time traveling all over the world, hunting down legendary ghosts and monsters. Well, thank you for enlightening us about Rhode Island and this corner of the world. Yeah, I, I you know, I think we probably just did a tip, of, you know, touch the iceberg on this one. There's probably more. I know you've written about ghost ships and, and other things. Yep, ghost ships. Uh, uh, just uh, published a couple of years ago a book on Dracula. Um, I just uh, was in France this past spring hunting down a legendary werewolf story from the 18th century. So yeah, I, I've, I've tried to make a career now out of finding legendary monsters. So you'll be a popular guy in October. I try to be. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Christopher, Randine, and um, Arindina, um, and thank you, Joni, again, and um, Darren and Jesse, and I guess that's it, everybody. We'll see you in November. Ta-ta. You've been listening to the EG News Podcast, the official podcast of the East Greenwich News Publication. If you haven't already, head on over to eastgreenwichnews.com and sign up for our newsletter so you can be notified of everything that's going on in our community. And also, hit that follow or subscribe button so that you can be notified every time we upload a new episode.